You're listening to Wiley Connected, a series of podcasts on tech, law, and policy. In each podcast, technology-focused lawyers at Wiley, a Washington, D.C. law firm, break down innovation and law with a uniquely D.C. perspective. Welcome to another episode of Wiley Connected's podcast. Our episode today hits as tensions rise with Russia and the United States government is practically begging companies to redouble their cyber readiness. I'm Megan Brown, partner in Wiley's TMT and cybersecurity practice, where for 10 years we've advised on risk management, incident response, vulnerability handling, and helped build relationships with the national security apparatus to assist critical infrastructure and others in managing cyber risk and cyber threats. We're joined by my new colleague, Lynn Brown, who joined us last year from the Federal Bureau of Investigation to help our clients manage an onslaught of new regulations and expectations. Lynn is a special counsel in our TMT practice, and she's helping us focus on cutting edge cyber, privacy, and data governance issues. She advises clients on cybersecurity preparedness, incident response, and insider threats. She recently joined us from the FBI's National Security and Cyber Law Branch, where she had a variety of senior leadership roles, giving advice to the FBI on cyber intrusion and national security investigations. She's also served in senior positions at the White House, the Central Intelligence Agency, and the ODNI. So today we're planning to address major trends that we saw pick up speed in 2021 and offer some insights into what's coming in 2022 for the private sector as it looks ahead to cybersecurity in the new year. Thanks for joining us, Lynn. I'm glad to be here, Megan. So we're going to jump into cybersecurity kind of a 2021 year in review and some predictions for 2022. I think it goes without saying, Lynn, cyber was a pretty big topic this year as a business risk and a national security concern. You know, I saw a big uptick in government activity and interest um, for those of us who've been in this area for a while, not a surprise, but really sort of grabbed a lot of headlines in a maybe surprising way. 2021 really showed us uh, ransomware attacks can wreak havoc on business operations. A lot of our clients in critical infrastructure and otherwise are certainly aware of these risks, but we saw businesses across the economy forced to make choices about paying ransoms to threat actors facing significant business disruption, reputational injury, and then processing the compliance lessons. So, Lynn, sort of, let me hear from you. You just joined us from the FBI and obviously have a lot of life experience to draw from. What are you, what do you expect to see in 2022 in this space? Well, I think the global economic losses from ransomware have already been significant, and I certainly expect those to increase, unfortunately, for 2022. Ransomware attacks are a danger to our national and economic security, as well as to our public safety. The volume of ransomware attacks and the size of the demands have simply skyrocketed. I think the White House recently estimated that ransomware payments reached over 400 million globally in 2020. Costs for 2021 when they come in are estimated at around 20 billion. So ransomware is increasingly being used to inflict damage or extort ransom payments from victim companies, governments, and individuals. Victim companies also face significant costs associated with breach mitigation, as well as harm to brand and reputation. 
So I think the losses from ransomware attacks will continue to increase significantly as cyber criminals and nation state actors continue to exploit or extort victims for profit. And I think the loss numbers for 2022 will be even higher. Yeah, it's a shame and having from where you sat before and from where we sit here at Wiley, having helped companies get through some of these attacks. I mean, from my perspective, these are some of the worst of the worst criminals out there in terms of opportunism and lack of conscience, but it is also sort of seemingly an odd, it's a business model, right? Because they've found that it can be profitable. Why do you think the risk of ransomware attacks has increased so dramatically? I mean, ransomware was a thing, but I feel like in the last, you know, 12 to 18 months, it has really gotten through people's consciousness. Well, cyber actors, I think, have become increasingly sophisticated in how they pick and try to extort their victims. Many ransomware actors actually research their victims, determine the victim's net worth, and maybe even the value of their insurance policy. Uh, ransomware as a service has lowered the barrier to entry as more bad actors are able to purchase already developed ransomware from criminals for a fee. So malicious cyber actors, um, they also operate on the dark web. They take elaborate steps to conceal their identities and they try to leverage the anonymity of cryptocurrencies to avoid detection and apprehension. You know, it's as you saw, I'm sure, and we'll talk about momentarily, right? They are often operating kind of almost openly and notoriously in certain safe havens or parts of the world that we can't get to. So I know we'll talk a little bit about some of the law enforcement tactics and the need for public-private cooperation. But I guess, you know, can you share a couple of your perspectives on the lessons from some of these high-profile ransomware attacks that we saw this past year? And all this is for our listeners leading up to a discussion of kind of preparedness and, and what we see coming down the pipe in uh, 2022. Well, we've already talked about how ransomware um, can result in billions of dollars in, in losses, which certainly I think is taking its toll on the economy. But we saw particularly this summer how it can disrupt our daily lives with gas shortages and higher prices for basic goods and services. So let's take a look at what happened this summer. We had Colonial Pipeline paid a $4.4 million ransom after an attack compromised its operations and caused gas shortages throughout the East Coast. In June of 2021, JBS paid $11 million in ransom after an attack caused the company to close its meat processing plants, causing meat prices to soar temporarily. Um, in July, Kaseya, an information technology software provider, received a $70 million ransom demand to unlock millions of infected systems. Yes, and, and we can discuss sort of all the lessons from those individual attacks um, in another pod. I look forward to your thoughts as well, but keeping it sort of high level, kind of, do you have thoughts on which, which sectors are most at risk at this point, or is this sort of all companies face this kind of threat? I think all companies face this kind of threat. I think the critical infrastructure is definitely a target. The defense industrial base and um, e even targets like education systems, schools, hospitals. There's just a variety of potential targets for these actors to go after. Yeah, and I think what's been interesting to see is how sometimes they will sort of steal data and extort data. Sometimes they will seize systems um, that are operationally significant. And so I think there's a lot of 
um, lessons to be learned, but you know what we're seeing is a lot of companies across the sort of economy and also in the nonprofit sector are, you know, hopefully, and from our perspective, they are starting to take this pretty seriously because it, it I think, has has punctured the consciousness of at least, you know, in-house counsel as well as hopefully uh, chief security officers. So, what can companies do to protect themselves? And, you know. Obviously, that's a leading question. We advise a lot of folks on how to protect themselves. From your perspective, sort of what should companies prioritize? Companies can help protect themselves against regulatory review and possible enforcement actions by reviewing the relevant cybersecurity requirements in their sector and making necessary adjustments to comply with the standards the government is setting for itself and establishing as its de facto standard of care. Given the frequency and costs of ransomware attacks or breaches, Cybersecurity needs to be a top corporate priority. Having an incident response plan can help companies respond faster and can significantly limit the damage caused by a ransomware incident. Identify the crown jewels in terms of sensitive data or information systems. Have backup copies of key data. Identify in advance who to retain as outside counsel, who will do the forensic review, or even who will conduct ransom negotiations for the company. Know how to contact law enforcement. Meet with the FBI beforehand to establish relationships before a ransomware attack occurs. Local FBI field offices welcome making connections before something goes wrong. And finally, test out the incident response plan on a regular basis and revise it accordingly. And I think a big takeaway from some of these attacks is you know, you not only have to sort of protect your own digital technology and your own data, but you have to have these contingency plans and have thought about what happens when others in your ecosystem may get hit by a ransomware attack because of, you know, the digital reliance that you talked about, Lynn. There's also this interconnectedness that, you know, companies have ties to vendors and suppliers and, and third-party payments. And so all of that can be disrupted by a ransomware attack, even if you aren't the subject of it, and I think that's it's just a, a reminder to companies and organizations that they need to be aware of those dependencies and, and kind of have contingency plans. So Lynn, the government has not exactly been quiet in the face of this ransomware threat. I think they've been frustrated. Candidly, my perspective is they don't love being surprised when news hits of a ransomware attack and they're sort of playing catch up. And by that, I mean, folks in Congress, folks at the Department of Homeland Security, folks at the FBI. How do you think the government is responding to what is a, a pretty darn challenging threat, right? If we could nip this in the bud and go overseas and arrest these, these bad actors, we would, right, presumably. So how do you see the government responding with an, sort of its all tools approach? Well, I think the government is trying to counter ransomware efforts in a variety of ways simultaneously. And first, they're focusing on disruption. The government has prioritized disrupting ransomware actors, facilitators, networks, and financial infrastructure. So, for example, DOJ has established the Ransomware and Digital Extortion Task Force to enhance coordination on law enforcement and prosecution of ransomware cases. And working with my former client, the NCIJTF, the National Cyber Investigative Joint Task Force, the government is mouthful. surging. That's <laughs> yeah, a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> so working with NCIJTF, the, the government is surging resources to support ransomware investigations and importantly, asset recovery in an effort to hold ransomware actors accountable. 
Next, uh, the government is calling on the private sector, which I'd like to talk about a little bit more, to increase its investment and focus on cyber defenses to meet the ransomware threat and is making available a variety of resources to help. So, for example, in July of 2020, DHS and DOJ launched StopRansomware.gov to help private and public organizations access a variety of ransomware risk resources and importantly to provide a single forum for ransomware attack reporting. So it's kind of like one-stop shopping for the government and governmental resources that can be available to the private sector. And I think that's an important piece in terms of um, helping to assist the private sector in combating this threat. No, I think that's important. I know the, the private sector as explained to the government, and I agree wholeheartedly with this, that oftentimes it is difficult to know what part of the government you're expected to work with, given the multiplicity of agencies here. So anything they can do to synthesize that, uh, I think is gonna be helpful to the private sector, particularly companies who don't have, you know, extensive ongoing relationships with uh, the FBI or DHS. So you had mentioned virtual currency, and I know that that is, an area that has some controversy surrounding it just in terms of, you know, the companies who are promoting virtual currency tout its benefits. I know there's been studies about how the, the distributed ledger technology has enabled the government to trace certain payments at the same time. I think the government is skeptical about the anonymity and the, the idea that bad actors are asking for payment in virtual currency kind of signals to them that there's a problem. What is the government doing in the virtual currency space in this narrow area, not sort of the FDIC kind of regulatory stuff, but how are, how are they dealing with the cyber consequences of virtual currency use? Well, I think the government is trying to address the abuse of a virtual currency to, to launder ransom payments. It's a, it's a leading way in, in which these malicious cyber actors extort money from their victims. It's, it's important to remember that virtual currency is also subject to the anti-money laundering controls. And that means the government is leveraging existing capabilities, I think, in creating new ones to try and trace and interdict ransomware proceeds. So for 2022, I would look for more action by Treasury in particular on financial transparency regarding virtual assets. So internationally, let's pivot real quick to the sort of international side. I mentioned earlier, there's bad guys all over the world who are able to sort of operate on the dark web and, and are sort of out of the reach of, of the FBI uh, and U.S. law enforcement. What do you think the U.S. needs to do to enlist better cooperation from our partners that doesn't suggest that there isn't good cooperation. We've seen some really effective joint efforts recently uh, that I, I really applaud. I think the Department of Justice is doing a really good job there, but what do, what do you think they need to do more? Well, I think they're gonna try and leverage international cooperation to, to try and disrupt the, the ransomware ecosystem and address the significant problem of there being safe harbors out there for ransomware. So I think there'll be more international engagement as the global cost of ransomware increases. I think the government is taking steps together with foreign partners to counter ransomware attacks, as you just said, and is seeking greater public-private partnership to, to jointly fight these malicious cyber actors. So um, at the same time, though, I, the government is also expanding regulatory obligations, oversight and accountability for some of these private sector entities 
So I think this reflects the administration's position that the private sector, which owns and operates the majority of critical infrastructure, really must do more to modernize their cyber defenses uh, to help meet the threat from ransomware. So what's the government doing, Lynn, on its own side to to stem the tide? I mean, there's a lot of law enforcement and government resources, sometimes from the private sector perspective, they they seem maybe not as well coordinated. Can you speak to what the government is doing on its side to sort of deal with what it has to offer and, and coordinate and consolidate? I think the government has embarked overall on a more aggressive effort to fight back against cybercrime in particular by breaking down stovepipes, collaborating, sharing information. The government has successfully recovered millions of dollars in ransomware payments from malicious cyber extortionists and has deployed decryption keys to return compromised data to its rightful owners. So while law enforcement, intelligence agencies, and international partners have come together to combat ransomware attacks in cooperation with the private sector, um, some agencies are ramping up their enforcement actions for cybersecurity deficiencies. Battling ransomware actors, as well as the mechanisms being exploited, I think has become a, a whole of government endeavor. I did like what you said about the breaking down stovepipes and collaborating. I mean, one thing you and I have discussed is sort of DOJ, DHS. There's a lot of folks with a role to play. And just one little example that's relevant in our sort of telecom space is I've been heartened to see the Federal Communications Commission reaching out to DHS and looping them into some of their work um, so that the Department of Homeland Security's resources can sort of take lead, so to speak, in some of those efforts because it's from a regulated entity's perspective, it's really frustrating to have multiple regulators, multiple law enforcement agents, and multiple touch points that you have to hit, particularly if it seems like they're not sort of, you know, talking well to each other uh, can be a, a real spin of resources. Um, and I think that relates to some of the public-private partnership issues that I have long thought are really the critical way through the cyber challenge. It's been the bedrock of federal cyber policy for you know over 20 years now. Um, I hope we're not going to get away from that model, but there remains in some places um, a perceived, perhaps, disconnect between parts of the private sector and parts of the public sector. I think your former employer had did a great job over the past five to 10 years of building trust with the private sector and sort of shifting its rhetoric and its approach. But where do you think there is a disconnect and what would be sort of the, the causes of that disconnect? Well, I think there is already considerable confusion in the private sector about the respective roles and responsibilities of the federal agencies that are involved in cybersecurity threats. Um, you know, ultimately, collaboration in cybersecurity is a, a critical part of responding to and ultimately defeating these cyber attacks. So I think the government needs to come together from within and needs to find a productive way to engage with the private sector. You're right, the FBI has done a very good job of proactively reaching out to the private sector and, and, and trying to foster relationships and with threat briefings and, and creating relationships before they're subject to an attack. But I think similarly, the private sector needs to try to leverage the resources that the federal government is providing and watch for the signals that the government is sending about it, what it considers to be the threats and what it considers to be the relevant standards of care essentially for cybersecurity. 
So Lynn, I think you're exactly right for the private sector to be looking at the signals the federal government is sending about expectations. They've done that in several ways. You know, for example, we have this new national cyber director position that was created by Congress. Uh, Chris Inglis is in that seat now, and he recently said, as we've always long heard, cyber is a team sport, requires collaboration between the agency sectors and nations. And with that, I, I love that rhetoric because it's been common. I think there's been some regulatory notes that the government, this administration has hit that are a little worrisome long-term, but in terms of the signals and how the private sector can be part of that team sport, CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency within Department of Homeland Security, has put out a lot of these, quote, signals, to use your phrase, Lynn. Recently, they released some federal government cybersecurity incident and vulnerability playbooks as part of the Biden administration's efforts to sort of draw attention to cyber and, and improve federal agency cyber. These playbooks are intended for the feds, but what do you think they suggest for industry? Well, you're right. The playbooks are intended to apply to federal civilian executive branch agencies, but I think it's important to note that they also apply to federal contractors who operate information systems on behalf of a federal civilian agency and information and communications technology service providers who have contracts with federal civilian agencies. And importantly, CISA is also encouraging all public and private sector partners to review the playbooks as a way to check their own vulnerability and incident response practices. While the playbooks may not be binding on the private sector the way they are to the government or federal contractors or ICT service providers, the private sector should consider how their cybersecurity practices compare to what's in the playbooks because the government has made it clear that it expects companies to improve their cybersecurity in response to increased threats from malicious cyber actors and the playbooks give them a benchmark for doing that. Can you give us a couple examples from the playbooks? I mean, we've already started using them with clients, sort of picking out some of the, the notable nuggets. So give me a couple of, of examples about how these playbooks can help. Well, let's break the playbooks down. As, as you referenced, CISA issued two different playbooks, one for incident response and another for vulnerability response. The incident response playbook applies to incidents that involved confirmed malicious cyber activity involving a real or a potential major incident. Certain federal contractors will be expected to use the playbook to report cyber incidents while reporting specific requirements and timeframes you know, depending on the contractor or the service provider's agreement with the government. The vulnerability response playbook applies to any vulnerability that is observed to be used by adversaries to gain unauthorized entry into computing resources. So this playbook builds on CISA's binding operational directive 2201, which, which we did an alert on in the fall, and standardizes the high-level process that federal civilian agencies should follow when responding to vulnerabilities that pose significant risk across the federal government and the private and public sectors as well. I think the response, the vulnerability playbook is uh, is particularly useful because clients have often struggled with what to do with identified vulnerabilities and the government has had several initiatives to try and address vulnerabilities, both 
those that are discovered and not exploited, but also those that um, you know are exploited. And I think that's a big challenge as we go forward is sort of definitionally trying to help the private sector understand what vulnerabilities need to be acted on, what the government's expectations are about reporting of vulnerabilities, both to government customers, but also across the private sector. So Lynn, jumping ahead kind of, I'm I'm worried about the direction of some of the federal government's activities here, particularly kind of, you know, increased enforcement and the other signals that the government is sending. And this gets at sort of my view, and I think we've discussed this before, this sort of moving to a trust but verify model and maybe even beyond trust but verify. But Kind of what what other signals do you see the government sending to the private sector to kind of nudge them in the government's desired direction? Well, I think the CISA playbooks are part of the increased federal attention to government and private cybersecurity. The government has, you're right, increasingly been seeking to improve the cybersecurity posture of the private sector whether it's by the examples set with the CISA playbooks or through a variety of regulatory requirements or proposed enforcement actions. So DOJ, for instance, recently announced that it was stepping up its corporate enforcement actions to change corporate behavior so that effective compliance programs are put in place. DOJ is also launching a civil cyber fraud initiative to combat new and emerging threats to critical and sensitive information systems. And DOJ is essentially putting companies on notice that it will not hesitate to use its civil enforcement authorities to pursue government contractors under the False Claims Act when they fail to follow required cybersecurity standards. And I think we we did an alert on the civil cyber fraud initiative. Um, I am a little troubled by the tone of that that came out from the Deputy Attorney General, Lisa Monaco. I don't know that that tone and that sort of the stick approach in the carrot and stick here is is super helpful to the the partnership model that we've been trying to promote for a long time. But, you know, from your perspective, what do these enforcement noises, let's call them, uh, mean for the private sector? Well, I think companies should carefully consider their cybersecurity, privacy, and supply chain programs in light of these new DOJ initiatives. Companies can help protect against civil fraud enforcement and other litigation and oversight issues by reviewing the relevant cybersecurity requirements and publications like the CISA playbooks and incorporating government guidance into their own risk management plans. Companies should also consider how their incident response processes compare to these evolving expectations as senior government officials, you just referenced, have made clear that they expect companies to follow the government's lead in improving cyber readiness. Yeah, improving cyber readiness is kind of the, the theme that the federal government has been hitting, but also in our day-to-day -day work, we've been long advising companies to take a risk management approach to building cybersecurity programs because there isn't sort of one set of regulations or one way to do this right across industries or segments or sizes. You see that in, for example, the the NIST publications on cybersecurity, including but not limited to their sort of seminal cybersecurity framework, you know, which is going to be updated according to uh, NIST and Kevin Stein in 2022. 
so in the absence of you know sort of comprehensive federal legislation or many sector specific regulations lynn sort of let's discuss where companies can look at this point to help them determine what a reasonable cyber program looks like how they can try and move the ball on their cyber readiness and then maybe we can talk a little bit about what we see coming in the near term in 2022 for listeners well i think companies can look to federal contracting standards to the NIST publications you just mentioned, and now the CISA playbooks for incident response and vulnerabilities for guidance on what the government is looking at. Um, I think the government, in terms of 2022, would sincerely like to increase public-private partnership, particularly with those in critical infrastructure. Um, the national security risks created by cyber intrusions, particularly against the defense industrial base and the toll that ransomware has been taking on the economy has never really been more clear. I think federal departments and agencies are increasingly seeking to use their authorities to fight this threat. So for 2022, I see increased regulatory requirements to advance or incentivize good cybersecurity and more enforcement actions in the future to penalize what the government perceives to be deficient cybersecurity. So that means there will be substantial growth, I think, in regulatory requirements and oversight with new and enhanced disclosure requirements. Federal regulators will increasingly leverage their authorities and I think seek new powers as well to demand that companies address the threats posed by ransomware, that they update outdated industrial and operational control systems and that they address software vulnerabilities and more. Yeah, Lynn, there was a lot packed into that last couple of sentences because sort of as as we've discussed looking into 2022 and the things that are going to keep us and our clients and colleagues busy, right, um, you've got the, uh, hopefully to some uh, observers, the um, adoption of many of the recommendations of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, many of which had bipartisan support, some of which um, did not make it into this year's National Defense Authorization Act, but are still live uh, proposals in terms of, uh, for example, mandatory incident reporting. So there's still a lot more to come on incident reporting. There are a couple of uh, executive orders, one presidential memorandum and one large executive order from President Biden that are being implemented right now across the federal government at DHS, at the Federal Trade Commission, at NIST. And I think a lot of shoes are gonna drop this summer on things like performance goals for critical infrastructure, which uh, Jen Easterly and others have made clear are going to, are intended to drive a standard of care for the private sector shy of regulation. Nonetheless, they are still looking at um, regulatory authorities. We've seen several cyber directives, one to pipelines and one to the rail sector that are being implemented on a, a rapid pace. Uh, those also will have rulemakings that follow. I think we'll see similar activities targeted at other of the critical infrastructure sectors and the information and communications technology sector more broadly, which has been a focus of a lot of different regulatory overtures. So, I mean, I think we're in violent agreement that 2022 is gonna be pretty busy and that we're probably gonna see a pivot a bit uh, away from a pure public-private partnership model to more of a, a carrot and stick, as I, as I used that phrase earlier, 
So I think we've kind of only seen the tip of the iceberg here, and I very much am thrilled you're on the team to to grow our expertise and, and our ability to serve clients on these issues, particularly in that collaborative vein with the FBI and DHS. We've helped our clients deal with them before, and I'm, I'm glad to have reinforcements because I think things are only going to expand. So for our listeners, thanks for tuning in. We are delighted to have you, and we will have lots more content in 2022 as we grapple with these emergent regulatory issues in the area of cyber. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Thank you for tuning in to the Wiley Connected podcast brought to you by the attorneys at Wiley. If you enjoyed this episode of Wiley Connected, we encourage you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on iTunes and SoundCloud. For additional resources and materials, head over to WileyConnect.com. Thank you for listening. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Wiley Ryan LLP and its employees. The material contained in this podcast is not intended to be and is not considered to be legal advice. Transmission is not intended to create and receipt does not establish an attorney-client relationship.